All right. Take 36. Here we are. It's the first in a series of six movies. Unless Rudy doesn't do his homework and then it'll be three. Uh, <laughs> it's the Roller Hunt the Barrel Show. I am your host, the Barrel Roller, Matthew Bernard. I am joined tonight by my co-host, Rudy Swampbox Frias and... A special third guest for the movie series. This is episode one. This uh, this episode, we are joined by Mike Marbles Feeney. I will get to their hellos in a second. Let me set up what we're doing here. Rudy and I drafted a while ago the six baseball movies that we wanted to do. We th- We just went off our favorites and stuff like that. So, in the first of a series of six, tonight it is Major League everybody's very familiar. If you're listening to this, you know all about that movie. You love that movie. We love that movie. Uh, We've watched it thousands of times, and Mike Feeney just watched it three minutes ago. And we're going to go through and revisit the movie. This is not a watch-along. Do not pull out your DVD of Major League because we are not following the pace of the movie. We're just going to talk about uh, every scene and give our thoughts on the scenes and and have some fun doing it. So without further ado, let me bring in my co-host, Rudy Frias. How are you doing this evening? I'm doing good. I got uh, the last jar of apple pie moonshine. It's the nectar of the gods, ladies and gentlemen. It is, and uh, so that feels pretty good. Uh, Rudy, how's uh, how's the fam? Fam is great. Very uh, excited that uh, this episode is centered around this movie. We've uh, my my wife enjoys this movie. So when we had a conversation before I came down here, and she was like, "Oh, that's new," so she liked that. Uh, and then we also are joined by uh, podcast favorite friend. <laughs> And uh, so much more. Uh, Marbles, Mike Feeney, captain of the Canton Corn Shuckers. Mike, how you doing? I'm doing well. Doing well. Thanks for having me. You sound great. Uh, wow. If if only everybody's audio would sound like that every time that we did this. This would be amazing. I just saw Mike at a hockey game the other night. Uh, good for you, Mike. Uh, Windsor Spitfire. Champions of the night. Uh Rude. Rudy, <laughs> uh, Mike Feeney is uh, taking over the vintage world. I don't know if you know this, but he's uh, he's into the bats and the balls, and he's getting into equipment. Mike, 
Uh, where is this going to stop? I don't know if it's ever going to stop. Yeah. Uh, just love being a part of vintage baseball as much as I can in any way that I can. So, <sighs> I, I, I mean, it's safe to assume that the goal is Mike Feeney will not be happy until he's playing on Feeney Field with <laughs> a Feeney ball against a team comprised of Feeney fanatics. I mean, this is it's going to happen. Well, uh, maybe one day I'm just trying to weasel my way in enough that when my team kicks me off, I'll still have a place in this vintage baseball <laughs> world. I don't think you have to worry about a place in this vintage baseball world. Uh, hey, so we're talking about the movie Major League. Before we go break it down scene by scene, uh, Mike, you being of the younger, even though not as much young as people think of you, but you've gotten a little older. Uh, what is your history with this movie? Um, I remember watching it on TV. Um, I would say as a kid, some sometime probably between like 12 and 14 for the first time, somewhere in that range. Um, you know, obviously edited for cable. Um, yeah, it's, it's one of my all time favorite baseball movies, to be completely honest. Uh, what would you say your favorite is? Uh, probably the Sandlot overall. Oh, I believe that's on our well, list. Being a kid of the nineties, it has, you know, major league was a little before my time, but the Sandlot was kind of hitting its stride right as I was growing up. So that fit perfectly. Rudy, isn't Sandlot on your list? Sandlot is, uh, I think the first movie on my list. Uh, so that'll be good. I can't wait to just be a guest. Uh, yeah. If I'm available. Uh, <laughs> So Major League, uh, you know it stars, uh, you know who it stars, but it's Tom Berenger, it's Corbin Burnson, it's Charlie Sheen, it's Wesley Snipes, a virtual who's who of uh, stars that would go on to big careers. And uh, the movie starts, why don't we go ahead and just start, guys? The movie starts with the opening credits, and it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's like a montage of Cleveland. And they're going through the skyline of Cleveland. And uh, there's a, a statue of Moses Cleveland. And, uh, you know, they, they, they're really building up this Cleveland, even though it was really filmed in Milwaukee. Rudy, what's your first note when the, when the opening credits are rolling? My first note is, is that uh, they, they really capture the, the essence of Cleveland. Um, the director of this movie is uh, a, a gentleman by the name of David S. Ward. And he said that he made this movie as a long-suffering Cleveland Indians fan, knowing that they would never win a championship. And the only way that would happen is if he made a movie about it. So that was my first. But he never, but they didn't win the championship uh, in the movie. He should have just went all the way with it. Uh, uh, I know. My notes are, there is one one cut scene in the opening credits of a lot of uh, factory smoke coming out of a smokestack, and then the whole city is just covered in smog and smoke, and it's the most polluted scene I've ever seen in a movie where it just made me want to cough right there. Uh, but if you see, th there's one scene where they show you uh, buildings in the business district of Cleveland. And if you look down to the bottom right, you will see Higby's department store. 
and Higby's department <laughs> store allow me to go off on a riff to a different movie. That is where they filmed a Christmas story. So a Christmas story is going around the country trying to find a store that will let them film. And the Higby's in Cleveland is the only one that will let them film. Therefore, that's why they shoot half the movie in Cleveland. So the house, the Christmas story house, along with a museum and a store across the street, is actually in Cleveland. So you go to Cleveland, you get to see the Christmas story house. And in the movie... They live on Cleveland Street as an ode to them already being in Cleveland. And, and another reason they picked where the house was is because they wanted that awful industrial smokestack industry stuff in the background to show it's a working working man's town and all of that stuff. So that's why that house got picked, actually, not because of how it looked or, or anything like that. It had a, an open backyard. So... uh Also, uh, one thing about the Moses Cleveland statue that they show you, Moses Cleveland's last name was spelled C-L-E-A-V-E-L-A-N-D. That is the actual spelling of Cleveland. The newspaper makes a spelling error one time, spelling Cleveland wrong, and it stuck. Therefore, Cleveland is not actually spelled right, which tracks uh <laughs> Mike, do you remember the opening montage of Cleveland in the movie? I do. Um it was described very well by you guys. Um I don't really have too much more to touch on it, but uh it's kind of captures everything I've felt every time I've gone through Cleveland. <laughs> Not to shit on Cleveland. <laughs> I lived in Cleveland for a few years. I love Cleveland. Uh but it's an accurate, even today, it's kind of an accurate depiction as you're on 90 heading into the city and you got the factory and the Cuyahoga River. It's not, there are certain days where it is gloom and depressing and it is Cleveland. That's the best way to say it. There's a scene where people are playing checkers and they're drinking Miller Genuine Draft. That's Cleveland right there. Uh, also, <laughs> also, if you remember... There's a baseball game happening on a street. It's a cobblestone. It's like a brick cobblestone-ish street, and it's at the top of a hill. Okay, so the catcher is standing. I got a problem with this, people. The catcher's standing at the top of a hill. So when the ball gets past the catcher, the ball rolls all the way down the hill. That's not realistic. There's Playing in the street is realistic. But playing at the top of the hill is ridiculous. They just did that for the sake of filming something. It's really bad. I mean, you're insinuating that the guy miss the catcher misses the ball. Maybe the catcher's amazing, never misses a ball. No, he misses I mean, it. This could be a training. No, he misses it. And they're wearing jeans. And they're wearing jeans. All right, next scene. So, <laughs> you can't play catcher good play if you're wearing jeans. Before. Uh, so then they man wore jeans up until we made him no longer do that. So how long did that take? I think I remember that. Oh, geez. I probably, yeah, about a year and a half. That's, that's not cool. So then they go into this montage of how bad the Cleveland Indians have been since they won, they won a championship in uh, 1948. Ever since that championship, they have been real bad. We're talking, real bad and uh this is of course before their one world series of appearance that would happen later that they would lose but uh rudy you're from ohio 
you're you're not yes. an Indians fan, but you've had to feel. No. You know, up here in Michigan, the Tigers are bad, but we've had yeah. our moments. Nineteen eighty four, and then we were making playoff appearances in the two thousands. You know, we had a good t- a team good enough to win the World Series if if things go just a little bit differently, but definitely good enough. And uh, what has it been like being in Ohio with the Cleveland Indians for all these years? Well, it, it, it permeates throughout the, the uh, Columbus because Columbus doesn't have a major league team and we're kind of in between the Reds and the Indians. And so like, yeah, there's a division there. You're either a Reds fan or you're an Indians fan. Um, and when they were good in the late nineties, I mean, clearly this movie resonates with Ohio, but when they were good in the the nineties, it, it there was a buzz, and and even when they were in the playoffs, uh, there in like, oh, oh, four, oh, five, oh, like around there, like they were in wild card games against the Yankees. I mean, that was honestly my first experience living in the city when they were good, and there was like it was, it was electric. And to tie in Major League, uh, the Cleveland Indians and vintage baseball, the Ohio Village Muffins played at Jacobs Field when it was called Jacobs Field on opening day. And they have they had a game uh, out there that uh, I even uh, we all got like commemorative like opening day tickets. And there's some really great pictures of the Ohio Village Muffins on the field. So, yeah, it, it, the Indians matter especially here in Columbus, not to me, my, my little brother, uh, Eric dynamite. He's a, he's an Indians fan. So, uh, Mike, as a younger, uh, baseball fan, uh, what are what are your thoughts as an outside fan of the Cleveland Indians? Um, I wouldn't say I'm a fan. I mean, I'm, I'm from the Detroit area. So always a Tigers fan through and through, regardless of how bad they can be. So Cleveland's always kind of been a bit of a division rival. Um, Right. I was just saying as a baseball fan, I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't describing you as an Indians fan. Nobody wants to be an Indians fan. I get that. Nobody. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of like being a Lions fan here in Detroit. But they have been a pain in the ass to the Tigers. Yeah. For a long time. Uh, Okay. So we move on to where uh, the owner of the club, who's a former showgirl comes in, she has a meeting uh, with a bunch of old white guys. This is the most racist board of directors in a major league baseball uh, situation, and it's so realistic. Every single person around that table has white hair and is old, and it's uh, it's <laughs> it's sad, actually, how true it's that is. depiction of the time. <laughs> so she's going through. Now, the, the thing about this is she's telling everybody, you know, changes are going to be made, blah, blah, blah. We suck. Uh, and she act, what comes off to me in this, Rudy, is she actually sounds like she knows what she's talking about. Like she's knowledgeable. Like she didn't just make this stuff up. She has facts and figures. She, she knows what she wants to do, even though it hasn't been. She isn't coming out and saying what she wants to do. She just says changes have to be made, blah, blah, blah. She does not give them the plan that she has. But uh, your your thoughts on this scene, Rudy? I mean, you wouldn't, you wouldn't I- identify this individual 
individual as the antagonist immediately coming out of the, the, the film because, like you said, this is what any normal GM would do. Like, you could see Steinbrenner coming in after the Yankees not winning the World Series and being like, nope, we're changing everything. Over, We're bringing in this guy. We're buying this guy. We have to make changes. Every GM, president, owner of a club has done this. And and especially when they they have a goal in mind. And she has a goal in mind that eventually comes to light. So, yeah, I mean, this is pretty accurate. And you're right. She has the information to back it up. So, Mike? Yeah, I, I agree with that completely. She definitely has her facts in order. She has a plan. Uh, given the situation and the fact that they're not drawing people, it actually sounds like a pretty decent business decision to try and get them out of Cleveland. So sorry to all the people of Cleveland, but at the time, well, and she's a bitch. Stats probably made sense. No, she's a bitch Miami, too. Miami she gets that on. Sounds like a more desirable destination. Well, turns out Miami is not a more desirable destination for baseball, Mike. <laughs> we have proof of this. <laughs> In fact, it was a terrible decision. I, I think the players enjoy it more, though. <laughs> Why? Really? Because they don't go. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, ex-showgirl, I thought she was, eh. She was just kind of good looking as for being an ex-showgirl. Uh, you know... The next scene is a very important scene in the movie because you get the montage, and you get this montage, I believe, three times in the movie. And that's different sets of fans talking about the team. So you're, they're like, you know, who are these effing guys and, and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but my favorite, my favorite part about that is one of the sets of people that talks about the team three different times during the movie is Neil Flynn, who plays the janitor on Scrubs. So, yeah. <laughs> so that is great. Uh, that's a, uh, and he looks the same. Yeah. I don't know if he always looked older when he was younger. Uh, that wouldn't be that wouldn't be a good thing. But yes, janitor. Janitor on Scrubs. Rudy, we like Scrubs. What's your favorite janitor moment on Scrubs? Uh, the part where JD piss, pisses him off and it, he starts like like st- like lightweight stalking JD and making his life hell and other janitors turn against him. I think that's one of my favorites. Uh, I my fa- my favorite janitor moment is when he pretends like he's giving an olive olive branch to JD and he's like, Hey, you want to go do something or whatever? And they end up robbing this Chinese couple's apartment and JD doesn't know he's robbing somebody. And then the janitor just takes off and leaves JD there. Oh, that's good times. Good times. Everybody. It, it, you know, it, it's interesting real quick. You talk about the, 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 the montages of the people talking about the club and who they are and stuff like that. My favorite are the grounds crew because oh. not only does the, the director do an amazing job of like showing that baseball is international, but it's like not only is baseball international, but everyone in the world understands that the Indians suck right now. <laughs> at this so I thought that was brilliant. Mike, do you remember the... Uh... I have to... Yeah, go ahead chime in on the montage as well where my favorite uh people during that are the ones in the bleachers with the drums the diehard indians fans yeah they uh they show up during the creation supposedly of the wild thing 
yeah, they're actually in the movie more than just the three times that everybody else is in it. But yeah, they, uh, yeah, they are great. They start, it's, uh, they had to build that whole TP out there because like I said, this was filmed at the Milwaukee, uh, stadium, which has now been torn down, but they had to, they had to tear down the, uh, the slide for what's his name, Billy Brewer or the Brewer mascot that slides down into the beer or whatever. Uh, so it does look, it does look a little janky, but that's okay. <laughs> like left field, the fact that that was a real baseball stadium, by the way, because there's only about 15 rows of seats in left field in the shot they keep showing. So that was very weird now that you brought that up. Hey, they move on to uh, where the owner now meets the general manager, Charlie, and the plan is coming into focus. And now it's, uh, you know, she wants to relocate, but there's a lease with the city. But there's a, if they're really bad, if they draw a certain amount of attendance, uh, they can leave the city and go to Miami. And she's, she says it's not a whim. She's done all of her, the research and everything. They're already waiting for her. She's, in fact, she's got a mansion in Boca Raton. Not a great place from what I hear. Uh, and she has a mansion there waiting for her. And uh, that's when she brings up the name Lou Brown. Uh, great character in this movie. Lou Brown, at this point, had coached the Toledo Mud Hens in the International League, who I'm very familiar with, uh, the Toledo Mud Hens. Uh, he coached them for 30 years, and now he's selling tires. So uh, Lou Brown is one of the favorite characters in this movie. Rudy, what do you think about this Lou Brown hiring? Honestly, like, it is the quintessential manager. Like, even before this movie, like, came into my consciousness, if I saw that guy, I'd be like, he, he's got to be a coach. Like, He's got the, the, he's the, he's the, I, I kind of think of him as Wilford Brimley 2.0 from like uh, the natural, like he's just, he's got that gruff voice. I love that they offer him the job and he doesn't accept it immediately right away. <laughs> he's like, uh, <laughs> like, I guess somebody on the other line. Coach Major League Baseball. <laughs> Yeah, he seemed like he had zero interest at all. He's like, yeah, I'm working. I'll get back with you later. Uh, maybe if I have time, I'll come coach this team. So earlier, everyone was given a list of the players that she wants them to go after. And uh, remember, one of the guys is like, uh, this guy's dead. <laughs> and she's like, take him off the list. <laughs> so, So now we move on. Uh, to the scene where they start contacting these players that she's going to bring in. Uh, this isn't very funny, you know. I'm hungover. My knees are killing me, and if you're going to pull this shit, at least you could have said you were from the Yankees. And uh, so Jake Taylor's the first one they contact. He's laying underneath a couple of, uh, I don't know if they're good looking or not. He's hungover. Have, have either of you ever woken up to a phone call with a naked woman laying perpendicular across your body, just, you know, Mike doesn't drink, so this would have been by choice, but anybody have experience with a perpendicular <laughs> naked woman on top of them? Not that I'm willing to talk about on um, a public chat. 
<laughs> My wife and I, we she she uh, she was in her PJs, but we were hungover, and it was a phone call that I needed to get. Literally, I was shooting something. And I needed to get to set because they were trying to get a hold of me and my phone was off. And so it was kind of like that. But, yeah. Even even when I was in my youth and drinking, I had to have my own space. I don't think (laughs) I, like, fell asleep with women anywhere near me. If I slept in the same bed with them, there there was space. I need my space. Or I can't fall asleep. No, don't touch me. <laughs> I, I certainly can't fall asleep with somebody on top of me, no matter how much I've had to drink. In fact, I have to have I think... the sound of a thunderstorm going and a fan <laughs> blowing. These are the noises I need when I sleep. Does anybody else have ambiance going when they fall asleep? <laughs> no, oh. I mean... I got a, I have a, an air purifier running in my, in the bedroom that like, it's just an, a white noise. It doesn't, it's not purpose for white noise, but it has noise, but yeah, no, it's interesting. Cause like this scene you're talking about establishes uh, Jake Taylor as like, you already know that like this guy is a vet. Like he's like, this is one of his last year. You know, he's not everyone's first choice. And they say he's playing in the Mexican leagues. Is that what they said? Yep. Uh, Which, I mean, come on now. Probably some pretty good baseball if he's still hanging out down there. But, I mean, they, they, they treat it as like it's like the last stop before you're done. So. They treat, Mike, do you remember the scene? Yes. They treat. Jake Taylor, during, I have a big problem with Jake Taylor in this movie, by the way. We'll get into it later. For one, Can't wait. I think Tom Berenger is awful in this role. I think he does not play a baseball player very well. His swing is awful. Uh, his footwork is terrible. Get anybody in the movie, though, their swing, nobody in this movie can swing a baseball bat. Oh, that's true. Roger Dorn, they talk about how he can still hit, and it was like, what? <laughs> I just saw that swing. What? Yeah. Uh, but they're talking because Jake Taylor was supposed to be this all-star player for Boston before he started getting older and ends up under a Mexican prostitute. I don't know if she's a prostitute. She looks like she was easy, but uh, I hate Jake Taylor so bad. And he's such a terrible person. The owner of the Cleveland Indians is not the villain in this movie. It's Jake Taylor, much like, much like in the karate kid where Johnny was not the antagonist. Okay. Ralph Macchio was the bad guy in karate kid. And that's what's happening here. And I will explain this as it goes on, but I think we can all agree later on in the movie. And we'll get to it where he is following Lynn around and he's explaining himself and saying, he's sorry and how much he misses her and blah, 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 and blah, blah, blah. Just a couple of weeks ago, he was the same person and he's giving her this line of how he's older and things are different. He's just trying to put his life back together. No, He's not. He snorted a line of coke off that Mexican hooker's ass, and he's still the same person. 
Anyway. Uh, so then we see Lou Brown. Yeah, we talked about the, the pay phone uh, or the, the phone call to Lou Brown. And then we see Rick Vaughn in his prison oranges on the pay phone uh, asking him to come to spring training with uh, with that haircut and everything. Mike, you uh, you strike me as a wild thing kind of guy. Big time. How good do you think Rick Vaughn was in the California Penal League? Uh, probably very good, based on who he would have been playing with and the fact that he can throw 100 miles an hour, uh, regardless of how wild he was. I mean, I'm sure it probably started some fights, but uh, I think he could hold his own. Uh, Rudy, your thoughts on, on wild thing, Rick Vaughn? Um. I mean, let's uh, so not to circle back, but it's funny because if you look up, if you just type in major league film in in Google, it gives you a little rundown and it says that Jake Taylor is the protagonist of this film. So like the film is about him. He is the main character. I would argue that Rick Wild Thing Vaughn is the character, is the main character and the protagonist. He um it and the introduction. I mean, come on. It's just, you're automatically going to gravitate to him. He's got, he's young, he's handsome, he has a really cool haircut, and this is the late 80s, y'all, and that's all you needed. And you were like, I'm in. And I immediately, I I didn't even know, like, what position he was, but I knew that I wanted to be him. Was Was that a ZZ Top earring he had? Was that a ZZ Top? That would it, ruin it was the like cool. The little, the little lightning bolt thing. Wouldn't it ruin yeah. the cool for you if it was ZZ Top? I can't confirm that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, there's a scene in the movie, a deleted scene of Jake and Lynn getting married, their actual wedding. But they took it out of the movie because they didn't want the yep. movie to be about Jake oh, Taylor and right. Lynn. They wanted it to be about the Cleveland Indians. So they thought that was a little bit too much. I think they went way overboard on Jake Taylor. Just give me more Rene Russo, uh, less Jake Taylor. Yeah, and that's another Uh. thing. You know what? I'll back you up on the Jake Taylor thing because anybody that's willing to cheat on Rene Russo is not a good person. That's Rene Russo. Uh, She was an Olympic uh, athlete. Thor's Thor's mom, Feeney. What do you say? Oh, okay. Okay. Lethal Weapon 3 and 4. The remake yes. of uh, with Pierce Brosnan. Oh, Thomas Crown Affair. Thomas Crown Affair. Oh, oh so many anyway. good things. Rocky and Bullwinkle. Huh? Huh? Just pulled that one out. Uh, everybody starts showing up to spring training. You got Jake Taylor in his crappy car. Uh, he's really turning his life around. Uh, Pedro Serrano shows up. They talk about how he's into voodoo. Uh, everybody's showing up here. Uh, Dorn shows up. He's, they talk about how he's the high price talent. Uh, and Willie Mays Hayes shows up in a pimped out VW bug. Yes, yes, yes. And, and also I want to point out that Lynn also drives a VW product with a license plate that says read later, but I don't, I don't remember Volkswagens being that big of a deal back in the nineties. Uh, but Rudy, where does, 
will he get his money? So that's the thing. So he's kind of like uh, Wesley Snipes describes him as I think I, I think he said uh, a con artist or something like they like he just so he he talks about how he's he he can't hit and he can't he can't uh bat i mean he can't bat and he can't field but he can run and that well that was wesley snipes description of willie mays hayes and you gotta wonder like he sat he he comes off as like a salesman like a used car salesman because if there's one thing he is he is charismatic and it was it it, it would i mean he introduces himself. <laughs> I love that scene. He goes, "Hey, Willie Mays Hayes," you know, and he does, shakes everybody's hand, and then they go, "Who the hell was that?" <laughs> like they know he's not on the list, but he's charismatic. Uh, yeah, it, it feels very car salesman's vibes, where he's very charismatic but kind of sleazy, and he's yes. just talking his way into anything and everything that he can, and somehow he's convinced them to let him stay at this tryout that he has no reason to be at. And this is really interesting because, uh, you know, uh, any film, you're going to have people, you got to do your research, you got to do your homework, especially as an actor. They had everybody go through a two-week training camp for baseball. Like, and and uh, some people said, it, like, uh, if you have an actor who can't do, be athletic, who can't handle, it's evident. And and they talked about how, well, uh, case in point, you notice how you never see uh, Willie Mays Hayes throw a ball. Right. It's the same thing. It's the same thing in White Men Can't Jump. He couldn't play basketball. He had to practice yeah. for like six months. And you can tell in the movie that's not a guy who's played basketball that long. Yeah. And they have to hide it a lot. Yeah. So yes. And. Here's a, here's a, here's another uh, fun fact for you friends. He's not Wesley Snipes is not fast. They had to do it and they shot all of his running scenes in slow motion. Oh, do you remember when he comes he out there in the pajamas? Fast. He comes out there in the pajamas and those two guys are running so slow. <laughs> yeah. But they said he looked very fast and if they did it in slow motion, it looked like he was very fast. So Oh, it was like the Rocky 3 Apollo and Rocky running on the beach when Apollo was running at like half speed. So, so Rocky could pass him. Mike, you have no idea what we're talking about with all these references. Do you? Oh, no, not really. No, <laughs> we'll right. Mike, everybody shows up to spring training. What character are you grabbing, gravitating towards at this point? Uh, probably Serrano. Yes. I, I, I love the look. I love the bats. I'm all about it. This guy's here to hit, and that's all he's here to do, and I'm here for it. And uh, Serrano, most people know him from the insurance commercials, but I know him as the president of the United States, David Palmer, in 24. Yes. He was incredible until he died. Spoiler alert. <laughs> Go back and watch 24. It's interesting. Um they they talk about um, if I had a player that I would gravitate towards now, <laughs> it would be Roger Dorn. <laughs> yeah, so, I guess that makes sense to an extent. Like his, his introduction, 
his introduction is is like you know he's carrying his golf clubs you know you clearly see that this is a a a more of a a, a one percenter baseball player but well, not only he that is, he's not about the he's not about to take one off the face here you know <laughs> he's not about to risk his body if you ever see me in the infield I'm not about to step in front of a line drive. I'm going to let that go to the outfield, y'all. So now Roger Dorn, uh, back in the day, I would say more uh, wild thing. Uh, Roger Dorn, uh, he just gives him a wave and goes because he's actually, him and Harris are like the comfortable ones because they've been there. Like you don't really, uh, everybody else is new because they're trying to lose and everything and Dorn's all comfortable and what he's doing and everything. So he, him and Harris don't have any. We'll talk about Harris a lot later. Hang on to this. What the hell league you been playing in? California Penal. Never heard of it. Well, how'd you end up playing there? Stole a car. So uh, they're all getting to know each other. Rick Vaughn uh, introduces himself to everybody as a, has the first as the first little go around with Roger Dorn. Uh, Roger calls him Veghead. And Charlie, or I'm sorry, he's not Charlie Sheen. He's Rick Vaughn. Rick Vaughn gives him a look. And, uh, you know, they're setting up the rest of the movie and the relationships and all that stuff. In real life, Tom Berenger's character is not going to hang out with Rick Vaughn and Willie Mays Hayes. That's unrealistic. Now, I can see Rick Vaughn and Willie Mays Hayes together. But Tom Berenger is not going to be in that and he's more likely to hang around with Harris if you want to be honest about it. Because they probably know each other. They're a pitcher and a catcher. And uh yeah, that that relationship makes a whole lot more sense to me. Uh Mike, you ever taken a ball off the eye? I haven't. Luckily I haven't. Um, but I do I do think that Rick Vaughn maybe friends with him just because he's also a pitcher he's a new pitcher to league getting accustomed to the catcher i could see them hanging out but willie may say yeah i agree it doesn't really fit in that scenario uh i would say later on they might hang out but as far as gravitating towards each other in the beginning it doesn't make sense that 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 whole thing would set up obviously they're setting up the movie tom berenger awful uh <laughs> So you find out that uh, 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 Serrano comes over and he's dealing, he's dealing, and it's a great, it's a great scene inside the scene where Serrano comes over to the golf bag of Roger Dorn and he just takes off one of the club covers and he's like hats for bats and he puts it, he puts it on. Uh, oh, wait, I got something. Yeah, he puts it on the, uh, the bat and walks away and Roger Dorn says this. Whoa, amigo, I, uh, you can't ju- And leaves it alone because, because he knows he will get dominated by the very powerful Serrano. Hats for bats, Rudy. We said that all the time as, as kids growing up. Uh, hats for bats. Gracias. Like, like we, I honestly, I had no idea what that was the first few times I saw the movie because I don't golf. I'm like, what? What the hell is that thing? It does look like a hat for a bat. And uh, in Little League, we would we would make that joke a lot. It's it's an amazing character. David um, Haysbird 
um, Serrano, I'm sorry, Serrano, wanted to focus solely on the accent. Like he's like, I gotta nail this Cuban accent, and the small the 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 small amount of lines that he has are delivered in that that voice that can just like freeze you, and he's such an intimidating figure that he could take all the hats for bats. I would be like, they're they're all now yours, sir. Mike has uh, has Serrano uh, scared you into buying insurance. He has not. No, <laughs> might might be a good idea. Did you? Pretty good. Now I know this movie came because you're younger, but you still watched it, and it's still uh, it's quotable to this day. I mean, even in our vintage baseball lives, you hear this movie quoted all the time. Uh, do you find Absolutely. that on the young Canton Corn Shuckers? Do you guys quote any baseball movies or any movies? I definitely. Definitely we do. Um, I, I'd probably say it's more along, you know, the lines of things like the Sandlot because most of us were 90s kids growing up and are a little more familiar with those movies because those were the ones that were on TV all the time where it's like Major League when we were, you know, 10, 15 years old was on every, you know, maybe once a year kind of thing. If, but there was stuff like the Sandlot, uh, bench warmers that just got played on repeat <laughs> on TV throughout our lives that we just happened to come across over and over and over. So yeah, uh, I, I definitely hear Major League quoted here and there. Um, and it's easily recognizable, but definitely not the most um, referenced amongst our younger club. Hey, Barrel Roller, do you ever quote it? And if so, what quote do you quote? Oh my God, I quote so many. If you look, go back to season one of the podcast, I ended so many episodes with uh, this. This today's uh, game was sponsored by. I can't find it. The hell with it. <laughs> Harry Doyle up in the box. Uh, I use that one a lot. Uh, it's too high. I got it. I say that too much. It's yeah. way too we, much. Uh, there's only, there's one quote. We, we, we use it too high. We use that, but there's one that I use all the time and I use it with honey badger and I go, great catch honey badger. Don't ever fucking do, do it, it again. again. That's great. <laughs> that is great. Uh, before we leave this scene, when you go back and watch this scene, I want you to watch a professional actor at work. Corbin Burnson, after Serrano takes the golf club cover, and he starts moving his golf clubs away and around the corner of his bed to kind of hide them but just the entire acting of doing that is spot on it's it's it is just one of those little things and rudy as somebody who has acting experience and went through a bunch of uh, classes and everything those are huge it's it's all about the details like it's those little moments especially in film because film picks it up it's those little moments that that you don't need dialogue to convey an emotion or an objective, the audience can see it and they know immediately. Like, and and it was really great for Corbin Burnson because he's coming off of L.A. Law here, so they've only seen him in a various series. So that was a television show, uh, Feeney, back in the <laughs> '80s, and it was about okay. law in Los Angeles, and so it's a little more serious. But he gets to flex his comedic bones on this one, and it, he nails it, Barrel. You're right. He nails it in part one. 
future Roger Dorns I have an issue with, but we're only talking about part one today. Uh, then you see the scene, and I know that we jumped to it a little bit already, but we're not doing a watch along. So we've already referenced the fact that uh, Willie gets kicked out in his pajamas. They take his bunk bed off, and they just set him outside because he wasn't on the list. He's not supposed to be there. And he shows up in the in, uh, in the race where everybody's running slow, and he goes past them. And uh, he makes the team because he has speed. Can't do a damn other thing. I guess, well, that's probably why he made the team, if you think about it. So I guess we'll get to Gentry. I can think of a Gentry later. Uh, All right, so now we got uh, one of these. This, This movie has so many montages in it. It's a it's a montage movie. But uh this is uh you know now it's spring training so you know now they got to show every one of the stars and what they're doing and everything. So uh you know coach Brown goes and checks out Taylor. They're talking about his knees and he's like Jake got to tell me if you're 100%. I was that was my first attempt at that voice. <laughs> and, it was good. You nailed it. And uh Jake's like, yeah, why would I BS you about that? And the coach is like, you better if you want to make this team. So he he knows that he's old and hurting, and he's just like, you better keep lying about it, if you you know, which was kind of old school right there. Uh, and then we see him throw down to second, and it's it's not good. Uh, Jake Taylor, awful person, awful catcher. <laughs> you, I mean. You can kind of you're 100 percent right on this one because in my research, one of the biggest issues with Jake or uh, Tom Berenger playing Jake Taylor was he did not throw like a catcher, and and my brother Ian will probably attest to this. He has terrible mechanics for a catcher throwing down, and you can see in that throw because doesn't he like overthrow second base or something like that, or he botches the throw. It's a horrible throw. Mm-hmm. He tries to like show that he's still got it and he clearly does it uh mike tom berenger's catcher skills awful absolutely awful i think that ball that he threw down he short hop but just just the mechanics like the way his arm went so over the top it was just it was awful catcher is a position that it's one of my biggest gripes about this movie. is tom just berenger right because he's lack awful. of <laughs> just the lack of overall base ball skill from everybody involved <laughs> this is true uh it's something that you don't think about though because the movie's so damn good but uh jake taylor it awful is. person so the next is uh willie this is one of the great scenes is is willie hayes in the bat in the batting practice cage and he has so many gimmicks before he even gets set he uh, <laughs> he's digging his cleats in. He's waving his bat. He drops the bat. He's swiveling his hips. Like I would get injured right now if I swiveled. Like he swiveled, and and then you just see pop up after pop up, straight up, straight up pop ups. Boom, boom, boom. Obviously the guy can't hit. <laughs> and Coach Brown says, "You may." Run like maze, but you hit like shit. And then uh, he <laughs> he tells him every time he hits the ball in the air, he owes him twenty push-ups because he should be hitting the ball on the ground. And uh, 
That is great. Do you remember Willie Mays Hayes and his batting practice, Rudy? Yeah, well, so the thing is, is that uh, there, uh, friends, there is a documentary about the making of this movie called My Kind of Team. And the director, David Ward, says that Wesley Snipes learned how to hit a pop-up and all of those tapes of him hitting the ball into the cage are all individual shots. They're different shots. They could have just like cut the same swing over and over the same thing. They could have just uh, replayed it. But they said that he figured out how to do it. (laughs) And then they just filmed him doing it for like 10 takes. So, I mean, horrible mechanics. You see the results of his horrible mechanics. He's not a ball player. He's a little bit of a con man. And I kind of liked it. Uh, it's not impressive to be able to pop the ball up. It's not a skill that takes a lot of work at. I do it all the time. Mike, what do you think of Willie's uh, batting stance? Uh, it's a bit goofy. Um, but, I, you know, for the sake of the movie, it, it does kind of make sense that all their mechanics suck because they're a part of this team that's supposed to be pretty much the worst team ever in baseball. Um but yeah, his mechanics are awful. I love that he has to do push-ups. And I'm going to slightly skip ahead very briefly to when he was at spring training and the first time he popped up a ball, he dropped down in front of the crowd and did 20 push-ups. <laughs> it is so great. Uh, the only thing that his batting stance is missing is a big leg kick, don't you think? So then they show Vaughn uh, <laughs> uh, throwing, uh, warming up. They tell Vaughn, that they were uh, sleeves and caps in this league because he's cut the sleeves off of his shirt, which is pretty badass, actually. And uh, they're doing a good job uh, with the Vaughn character. And, uh, you know, it's funny how many times Rick Vaughn adjusts his cup in this movie because whenever something goes wrong, he adjusts his cup. Almost like, so Coach Brown says, we were sleeves gaps in this league and he like grabs his junk and adjusts and it's kind of like an fu without saying an fu but he does it he does it multiple times in this movie because i am focused on rick vaughn's junk uh well i mean that's a natural thing for baseball players (laughs) they're always touching themselves well he can't get in trouble for it right yeah yeah it's a perfect cover it's like he gets out a little of that He's got to he's got to lash out a little bit. How do you do it without getting in trouble? <sighs> and then he uh, they ask him to throw one, and he throws it between their heads, and hits the no pepper sign, and just shatters it into a million pieces. Ninety six miles an hour on the gun, and they say they got to teach him some uh, uh, some control. Uh, he's already established as the funnest character in this movie. Is he not Rick Vaughn? I mean, at this point already, he's already the star of the movie. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's speaking to the younger generation just in his demeanor. Like he's not really, I don't want to say he's, I don't want to say he's apathetic to everything that's going on around him, but he's just kind of like, okay, you know, all right, right, I'll do this. I'll pitch. All right. Let me throw like this. I mean, He's established himself as the coolest character on the team. You're right. And it's that cool of why he can't uh, 
Thrillwell because he refuses to address his bad eyesight, which comes up later. But he's very concerned about his cool. And but it's not like an outward thing. You just know that because of some of the things uh that it's happen. very it's very punk. He's very rock and roll, right? Yeah. Uh Mike, do you know anybody like Rick Vaughn? I can't say that I do. I wish I did. <laughs> I do. But but there's nobody that I've I've come across that's ripped the sleeves off their baseball jersey and What's the vintage baseball like equivalent? It. Mike Feeney, what is the vintage baseball equivalent of Rick Vaughn? And I don't want a name. But what would be what is something you've seen out there a player do that is Rick Vaughn ish? Wear an Apple Watch. <laughs> just, just too cool for what they're actually doing. Oh, trying to be too cool. They know it's wrong, but they don't care. Shots fired. <laughs> they're still out there doing it. <laughs> then we see uh uh Dorn taking uh taking ground ball practice and he's olaying balls and uh and Coach Brown is like, Don't give me that Olay shit. Uh, every time you take one off the hip, uh, 40 sit-ups. Once again, I have to comment on Corbin Burnson's acting because it's not the fact that he just says what. He says it, and it has so many different meanings. It's like, what? I didn't – there's no way I just heard you say that. There's there's <laughs> what? Calisthenics? There's What? <laughs> I'm a high-priced talent. You can't come over here and tell me what to do. All of these things are in that what, and it's just a what. He's so good. Yeah. He is exactly like Teddy once you gave him that stupid belt. <laughs> Still olaying balls. Still afraid of it, afraid to step in front of the ball. Try and tell him to do something. He's just better than everybody else. He's well, not doing sit-ups. He's not doing calisthenics. Mike, you're just bitter because he beat you. Just a little bit. Mike doesn't like to lose everybody, although he hides it better than anybody. You take the biggest a-holes, uh, the biggest sore losers in vintage baseball. Mike Feeney feels the same way when he loses, except he acts yeah. like a person when it's over as opposed to trying to burn down the entire team on the way out. Okay. Shots fired. You didn't see me after we lost a flat rock in the world tournament. <laughs> oh no, actually <laughs> that's not go behind some trees for that one. Yeah. Yeah. I heard about that. No, that's, I did hear that story. Uh, for some reason, I'm like the Oprah, Oprah Winfrey of vintage baseball. Cause people come over to me. Did you hear that? Don't care. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Roger Dorn, Olaying balls, Rudy. Uh, is this what Eric Frias does on a regular? <laughs> He'll never hear this. So, <laughs> uh, no, because he will kill me. No, uh, I do this on the regular. Eric is my example of Wild Thing Vaughn. Eric will step in front of a ball like make two errors on it and then still think he has a shot at throwing the guy out at first base and will pick it up and 
firing across the field at Ian, and it's it's not anywhere near him. It, Eric has sent one to the house at Greenfield Village on Walnut 2, overthrowing uh, first base. He's my wild thing. So, yeah. You just can't give up on the play, but you have to give up. No. You have to give up. Even, even <laughs> when I'm yelling no from the outfield. No. Uh, I actually, in all of my inadequacies as a baseball player, I refuse to give people the extra base because of an error I'm about to make. Uh-uh. Here's the ball. No more. This ends here. Uh, Mike, people like you, uh, it's hard to play first base for you people that just don't give up on a play. Mike, you're one of them. You're not to the extreme, but... I don't throw the ball hard. Are you saying that you set the ball not, up for not... the first baseman? What was that? Do you set the ball up on your throw over to first base for the first baseman to be able to make a play? I do my best. Yes. Um, the first person that comes to mind that doesn't is Sloop, who plays for the wheels. He's the same way where he will blast the ball 95 miles an hour somewhere within 20 feet of the first baseman. Uh, then we've seen that happen way too many times. You know, some people think that uh, the ball beating the guy to first base gets them off the hook, even though if no play is made, well, the ball was there. Uh, it doesn't. Uh, then you see Serrano crushing balls and batting practice until they throw him some curveballs. I don't think Harris can throw a fastball. Harris is another example of bad baseball in this movie. He looks like he should be throwing knuckleballs. And that's it. He has nothing on anything. There is, it's like a slow underhand pitch that's going overhand. Everything's a 12 to 6 curveball that just drops because of how slow it's going. Harris is awful. Who Who is worse in this scene, Rudy? Harris is throwing or Serrano's swing? Serrano's swing reminds me of a Giancarlo Stanton swing. It's ugly as hell, but the ball's going to go. And Harris, I'm going to, I think Serrano's swing is uglier just because Harris, the actual actor, played college baseball and was a pitcher, which is why his motion is a little more, um, has a lot more movement to it, you might say. It's a little more old school. But yeah, I, I would I would have to side side with uh, uh, Harris on this one. I think Harris was in the Last Boy Scout. Can you confirm that, Rudy? It just came to me just now. Was he in the Last Boy Scout? Let's find out. He was. Mike, you ever see the Last Boy Scout? I have not. Oh, that's uh, Bruce Willis that's and Damon Wayans. Uh, okay. You should watch it. Uh, Daniel Harris, a young Daniel Harris who, who plays um, the young girl in Halloween's four and five. She plays uh, Bruce Willis's you, kid in this movie. The Last Boy Scouts. Uh, yeah, he was in it. Uh, Senator Bernard. Yeah. Uh, I have this stupid talent to be able to put people even. 
look, there's this commercial out right now. And I picked the guy out of the commercial because he was on the Punisher TV series uh, that just happened like three years ago. Uh, I don't know how I do this stuff. I've seen the back of heads and been able to tell my wife who what that guy was in. And uh, it's stupid. I wish I wish the superpower meant something and I could do something with it, but I can't. It will one day. It will. <clears throat> uh, so then, uh, great moment in the movie. Dorn comes up to Brown with his contract, showing showing him he doesn't have to do any sit-ups or any unnecessary calisthenics. Uh, and uh, Coach Brown takes a contract, throws it on the ground, and urinates on it. But that's not the best part. The acting of Coach Brown turning and making direct eye contact with Dorn while he's urinating the entire time and then just moving on with his day. Rudy, great scene. Your thoughts? You muted yourself. You're I'm, mu- I'm, I'm you muted. Go. It's an amazing scene because once again, people are being able to tell a story without words. You hear the sound of urine, and you can already tell just by them looking at each other, their dynamic, what's going on, perfect. And the funny thing is, is uh, Lou Brown doesn't care. He he never cared. I don't understand why he took the job. Uh, is it love of baseball? He strikes me oh, as a yeah. paycheck guy, right? He strikes me as a guy that's like, I need a paycheck. Sure. I don't know. He seemed pretty content. Yeah, probably selling tires. Better than the tire joint it's working at. So, <laughs> but he never cared about getting the job. He's never coached in the major leagues, so that didn't even titillate him. Uh, Thirty years with the same club, so he he likes he doesn't like change. Uh, it's just weird. Uh, because you had to know going into that season, the Cleveland Indians were going to be bad too. So he knew they were going to be bad. So I guess I don't, I don't understand that. Okay. So now everybody's coming into the clubhouse after their terrible display of baseball out there. And they talk about the red tag. I've never been in a situation to get cut. Uh, they're all afraid to open their lockers. They're not going to cut anybody on the first day. Have either of you two been in a situation, uh, whether it be sports or Rudy acting or anything where you're showing up and you're just trying to hold a spot and you have to get let go because you didn't make the cut? Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Well, athletically, no. I've never had that in a sport, but definitely been staring at a cast list and not seeing my name on it and just kind of just it's real awkward it's intense it's it's anxious and yeah i i can relate to that feeny and you've never been cut uh nothing that i recall so if i have i've blocked it out of my memory but i do remember when i tried out for freshman baseball my name was the last one called and it was one of those things where it's just like the suspense was building. And I was like, up till then, I'd only played rec baseball. I'm like, I, I knew I was pretty decent. But then it was like at this level, I was like, I don't know if I can hang. And 
I wasn't really sure with myself if I was going to make the team and having to wait to be the final name called was very stressful. Uh, Definitely something that, yeah, the kids, the kids nowadays have to deal with having coached a high school baseball. That's not, it's the worst part. Like in my head, everybody should be able to get a chance to play, but it is the worst part having to cut people. Oh, it's life Rudy. Get over it. Uh, Harris takes his shirt off and has a virtual pharmacy all over his body. He says he's got Crisco, Bordal, Vagisil. The dude has Vagisil on his hip. And he just says it gives him an extra two to three inches. And then he gives us this little gem. Three inches drop on your curveball. Of course, if the umps are watching me close, I just rub a little jalapeno inside my nose, get it running. And if I need to load the ball up a little, just wipe my nose. I don't believe it. And here's why. If you put jalapeno in your nose, you're doing a lot more to your body than just getting the sniffles. It has got to be, and I, I'm sure there's been a time as a jalapeno eater that I've gotten jalapeno in the nose. I'm sure I have. I know I've gotten it in the eye. I know I've had it on my hands and then had to itch my eye. I've had that, but there's no way the minimum or the, I should say the maximum is just the sniffles. So you can get some snot on the ball. There's, I don't believe it. And I'm not willing to put jalapeno in my nose to find out. Mike, have you ever had jalapeno in your nose? No, I've, I've also had it in my eye where it's not a pleasant experience. Haven't had it directly in my nose though, but I, I imagine more would be happening than just a little sniffle. Have you ever had Vagisil in your eye? No, no, I have not. You didn't know it was Vagisil. Rudy, your thoughts on the jalapeno? Uh, Adam Johnson has a great story about eating a very hot jalapeno at, a, at our favorite Mexican restaurant here in Columbus for the Ohio Cup. Oh, I was there. And then forgetting to wash his hands before the restroom. Uh, so I don't think you would need to rub it in your nose probably just have it on your fingers and then maybe touch your nose but yeah i've never done that i don't mess with the spicy stuff uh then we cut to joe boo uh setting setting up his his scenes in this movie uh serrano of course with the voodoo uh has this to say Nope, he doesn't have that to say because I hit the wrong button. I'm going to hit the right button here in a second. Somebody say something. Something. Thanks for filling, you guys. We are a professional establishment, (laughs) and I'm looking for the right thing to play here. And you guys are like, Well, I mean, there are so many sound bites for this movie. all right so he basically says he he can't hit a curveball and uh uh he needs uh joe boo to bless the bats basically so he can hit a curveball here's a little something for you after harris says don't you think uh you know jesus christ can hit a cur- a curveball uh when harris says he should turn to his lord and savior jesus christ <laughs> Very bad. 
Steal Jobu's well. He's very bad. Obviously, that sets up a future scene. Uh, Mike, you ever have rum? No, I have none. That's too bad. Uh, Rudy, your thoughts on rum? Rum is a delicious uh, drink. It's a you don't. I wouldn't recommend taking it straight, Mike. You can put it in like some sodas. You can put it in a nice apple cider. It it it, it it's a it's it's an, a liquor that can be dis, disguised, and you're not even sure you're re, uh, you're drinking it. So uh, we're going to more spring training montage here with Rick Vaughn throwing to a tin man out like an outline of a man made of tin and he hits him right in the dick right with the first pitch in the dick uh and they come they actually come back to him later because it's another montage people it's a montage uh where he's hit the tin man uh a couple of dozen times and on the next pitch he decapitates him so the head comes off the tin man that is great uh, they show all the other guys. They all suck. Uh, it's time for cuts. They come into the locker room, and Serrano is is uh, blessing his locker with the snake, and uh, and Willie does it too with the smallest snake I've ever seen, <laughs> and <Dead> uh, snake. <laughs> he's like, <laughs> and uh, uh, after they they open their lockers and find out they have not been cut, Willie kisses the snake. And then realizes he kisses the snake. Um, anything on the last couple of scenes I just said, Rudy? I think it talks about the superstitions that uh, you constantly see in sports. I mean, Feeney, you got any superstitions? Uh, nothing that I do intentionally. I, I feel like I used to have some, but I kind of worked my way out of them. Just because I don't think they really do anything and it just gets in your head but it is all psychosomatic in, you're right yeah yeah just, just kind of getting in like a routine i think is the best way to go about things where it's like not really you know anything superstitious but it's just making yourself comfortable in whatever situation just by doing the same thing over and over so you're not you're not you wouldn't say you're superstitious you're a little stitious just a little stitious yeah okay i, I look for things to be superstitious about just so I have something to explain why I did something good. Uh, then you see a spring training game. Willie pops up and starts doing 20 push-ups. We talked about that earlier. That's funny in the middle of a game. Nobody knows what's going on. Jake Taylor gets absolutely trucked at home plate by somebody. It reminds me, and I think it was an opening day, Tigers against the Royals at Tiger Stadium. Kirk Gibson on third base. Pat Borders, the catcher of the Kansas City Royals. Kids, YouTube this if you haven't seen it. But there is a pop-up down the first baseline over the first baseman's head. He has to run the opposite direction his home plate, running towards the stands to catch this pop-up. Gibson tags and goes home on this and crushes Pat Borders. He just annihilates Pat Borders. And he gets up and he's all fired up. And I and I think that's nearing the end of Gibson's career with the Tigers. Uh, I think that's when he actually came back or something. But uh, I have never seen somebody get run over. I mean, that's very Pete Rose all-star game-ish, running over the catcher in the all-star game and and 
<laughs> virtually ending that guy's career. But yeah, look up Kirk Gibson uh, destroys Pat Borders. It's it's got to be on there. And then we go back to Willie sliding, and he's short on the slide. That brings me to this question: Willie Mays Hayes has one skill, one skill, and that's his speed. Are you telling me? And he's going to get, and later on, he's going to have a base running faux pas. But you're telling me this guy can't slide? It's the only thing he can do is run. He's probably run the bases a million times and been very confident about it because it's all he can do. Rudy, he slides short. Your thoughts? I think it's the perfect encapsulation of how far at the bottom of the barrel this team is. Because you have this character who his one main attribute that gives him value to the club does not come with any other uh, ancillary attributes. Like he cannot, he can run fast. He can't slide good. You know, he can run to the ball. Is he going to catch it? We don't know. And you talk about this montage heavy movie. A baseball season's like 162 games, and you have to like try and figure out how to tell a story about a club and how bad they are, you're going to have to montage it. And I, I actually love, I mean, especially in vintage baseball, you know, you get used to these slides that don't right, quite make it. You go, come on, come on. So it kind of checks out because you got to start at the bottom for them to achieve something later on. So it, it, it's a definite, it's a great storytelling tool. Mike, you ever slide short? I haven't, but bringing up to the aspect of a player that has all this incredible speed, and that's about it, which which is pretty much exactly how Ace started out on the corn shuckers. I was like, he's definitely progressed in his offensive abilities and his defensive abilities. When he first started, he just had speed, and it worked for him. Same way Willie Mays Hayes was, worked out perfect. And although, you know, there's a lot of teams in this area that don't really do the sliding, even when we go out east I and play – open completely unrestricted and authentic where you can slide. I don't think I've ever seen a slide. So I'm really curious to see if he were to slide, if he would end up short exactly the way it was <laughs> in the film. I see ACE as an overslider. Uh, Probably with his speed where you would think Willie Mays Hayes as well, though, with how fast he was going, you would think he'd be going through the bag, not coming up short. And it's amazing that he makes makes it through the final cuts, which is what comes up now. And they show everybody opening their lockers. Uh, Jake Taylor safe. Some dude named Gentry out. Now, question to you, Rudy. Gentry, who is cut, is he cut because of how bad he is or how good he is? Wow. Okay. So knowing what I know, I'm going to say, so uh, spoiler alert, uh, the original script called for a scene between uh, the manager and the owner at the end, right before the Yankees game, where the owner comes forward and says, no, I've been rooting for this team all along. I put these people together because it's who we could afford and I believe in them. And knowing that that was a part of the original script, I'm going to say that he he wasn't good enough. But we but that's BS. 
She's lying. It was in the original script. They cut that scene. It actually, they had that, it was actually, they shot it. They showed it to test audiences and the audiences felt that the scene was not, it, did, it didn't really resonate with them. They didn't really care about it. So they cut it from the final cut. That's right. Cause it's BS. Uh, Serrano is safe. He's a, he's with the, the snake again. He's got the paint and doing the symbol on the locker. Uh, Willie uh, is safe. And he's told ahead of time uh, that he cannot celebrate in the locker room because you don't want to celebrate in front of people who just got cut. So he goes outside and, and does a dance. Uh, that, that spring training facility that they shot at there was in Tucson, I believe, Tucson, Arizona. Uh, the actual, I think it's the actual spring training place of the Cleveland Indians where they shot the minor league stuff, if I'm not mistaken. But Rudy will will find me to be wrong. I'm sure if I am. Uh, and then, Oh, and then Vaughn gets, uh, gets a red tag and he goes into coach Brown's office and he tells him how he's going to basically shove it up their ass every time he plays against them and he's going to regret it and blah, blah, blah. And he gets done with this, this long story, uh, of aggression he throws a ball against something on the other side of the room and uh and coach brown obviously has no idea what's going on spirit in a player the only problem is i didn't cut you what i think some i think somebody's having some fun with you is what he goes on to say and the thing is is i don't think they've actually shown enough of the relationship between vaughn and dorn for vaughn to know 100% that was Dorn because that could have been anybody. Uh, he, he just picks out Dorn because they have had issue. Just, they haven't even had an issue. Just a couple of words here or there. I gotta believe there's a deleted scene out there on this Rudy. Do you know anything? There is I, not that I know of, but, it is uh, like a, a gap in like screen. It's like, you know, you're right. You, you called out a gap in the, in the screenwriting. Like they didn't do enough to establish the, the antagonistic nature of Dorn to, to, to Vaughn. They're just assuming that the audience is going to go along with them and be like, oh, it had to be this guy because he made fun of him and said some mean things to him. But you're right. There, there's not enough there to, to justify it. Mike, your thoughts? Yeah, I, I agree completely, where it was like, I, I think it was the assumption that it was Dorn, but there was nothing really that made it concrete or really proved that it was, or it's like the attack schemed a little out of nowhere, like, you could kind of pick up on it if you're really following along based on what was said before, but I agree, there definitely should have been a little more there where it, you know, was clear that there was an issue between those two. Because you're playing, you're playing tricks on people in spring training all the time. That's something anybody could have done. Uh, but I'm not going to get on Dorn too much. But I will get on Jake Taylor. Because if you look in this scene, if you look in this scene, Jake Taylor has his shoulder wrapped because he's a catcher and his shoulder's probably hurting. It is the worst shoulder wrap I've ever seen in my life. You look at that shoulder wrap. There's no way that's believable to be a guy who's icing down his shoulder and he's a terrible person. 
All right. So then we get a montage of all of the fans and uh, the, the whole, all the same fans saying what they say. And uh, they don't know they're getting the, they're getting the opening day roster. They don't know who these guys are. Uh, the janitor says, who are these fucking guys? And the janitor from scrubs uh, was in a taxidermy and would, and used to stuff squirrels. So I think that's important to know. Uh, <laughs> Taylor comes out onto the field because now they're in Cleveland, even though they're filming in Milwaukee and he comes out on the field. He does the Babe Ruth. Uh, I'm going to point. He's just having fun because there's nobody in the stadium and he, uh, He's got a suit coat on that he wears in the entire movie because he has no clothes because Mexican hookers are expensive. And he comes across, one of the things I noticed in this is when he, he scores, he he gives an air five to somebody, but they actually play the sound of a high five when he does the high five. I thought that was a cool little, uh, little thing in there. And then he notices... Uh, uh, Willie and Rick in the in the dugout, and they they kind of have fun with it. Uh, Rudy, this scene, it's nice because you get to step inside his head. It's like you're in his imagination because you even hear the crack of the bat and the roar of the crowd, and and it, it's it's a sweet little scene. Who hasn't been on a baseball field like that and ran the bases once or twice? Imagine, you know, I mean everyone's done that right Feeney? yeah that was actually one of the things that i did the first time i stepped on the field at tiger stadium it was after this uh seats were all down and everything um it was before i really got into vintage baseball but i was down there checking out tiger stadium as the flat plot of land it was and i did something very similar at the time so yeah i think everybody's done that i don't think it's but you're not a too dick. big of a deal jake taylor's a dick Hey, uh, and then they, they cut to a scene where they're all at a restaurant. And this is where we begin to see the dick Jake Taylor is. So they're having dinner at this, this, I would say you would have to say it's a fancy French restaurant. Okay. Nobody can read the menu. Rick Vaughn has to wear uh, a tie with his leather sleeveless vest. And, uh, all of a sudden Jake Taylor is, is a man of the world. How, when? What? He has shown nothing up to this point to he's a guy who likes to dine at fine French restaurants and drink wine. What has happened here? This is a terrible character. And then uh, Rick Vaughn says something about he wants chili dogs. And then he sees his ex, Renee Russo, who is pretty hot in this movie. And so he's going to go do something. He makes a phone call from the front desk to the other front desk getting her on the phone or whatever and he is a prick rudy jake taylor prick to renee russo he he has no business saying the things he's saying when you do a deeper dive into the character they're 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 asking you as the audience member to see him as this fatherly figure to the younger players this wise uh, the, 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 the wise man, you know, the one who can, who can bring them along, but he does some pretty underhanded stuff. He interrupts her date. He, he says that he, he refers to her as his ex-wife or his wife and then his ex-wife, but then they were never really married type situation. And so like, yeah, he has, he, he personally, 
Professionally, he's a subpar baseball player. Personally, he's he seems to be a subpar human. So I'm going to back you up on that one, Mike. Yeah, uh, I I agree. Um, I think maybe in the late '80s this could have been considered romantic, but these days he would have got me tooed out of the MLB. So <laughs> yeah, and she gives him a fake phone number. Okay, she don't like him. He cheated on her. Yeah, there, there's multiple. a lot that he's go, got going against him here. <laughs> multiple, I mean, he, multiple he's very times. Persistent. I'll give him that, but I don't know if that's a good thing. It's not persistence, Mike. It's stalking. You get you get court orders against you for doing the things that he does in this movie. Terrible person. I mean, yeah, he does follow her home from work, right? All right, like, we'll get to that. Just like in her apartment, like oh, he just, twice finds his way in no three times yeah there's he doesn't three. get let in to either of these places <laughs> three times he just walks into somebody's apartment no what? no 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 yeah but uh anyway they live happily ever after she's stupid uh the fact that they weren't not the fact that they were together in future movies wrong that's not how that turns out anyway Murder suicides, how that turns out. Because that dude is an a-hole with a drinking problem and Mexican prostitutes. Sorry. Here we go. <laughs> They're getting ready for the uh the opener. Serrano has to put some sort of gunpowder in his in his pot because he has to uh wake up the bats. Uh uh, they got to do the, they're doing the whole opening. Uh, coach Brown gives a, a half-ass opening day rah-rah speech. I didn't think it was that good. Uh, uh, Harris wants to do a prayer. Uh, Dorn leaves the room. Uh, you can, I, I don't know. You just, you feel the tension with the non-older guys. Like Dorn doesn't care. Dorn has no, He's not nervous. He's done this a hundred times. He don't care. But everyone else, the tension is so thick in there because there's a lot riding on it to everybody personally. It's not riding on them on the team. Nobody thinks that team's going to be good, but they want their baseball careers to continue after this year. So there's a lot riding on, on this. And then, uh, Serrano hits the gunpowder with the cigar and it causes the sprinklers to go off. I don't know. This is one of my least favorite scenes of the movie. I think they could have done so much more with the opening day locker room scene. Uh, Jake Taylor is in it and uh, that hurts. Uh, Rudy. <laughs> I think that it demonstrates uh, the chaos and the lack of cohesion in the clubhouse. Like, you get the metaphor of like it's raining on them. Rain symbolizes like, you know, gloom and doom. Nothing good ever happens in the rain. And so like I think they they really uh they have spent all this time up to this point to know that they there's infighting, there's some bullying, they're some of the people are not good people and so they 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 they're not a cohesive group so they're not going to be successful and i think i i i it's a metaphorically it's a good scene i agree with that i i think that they're really showing off that you know they've got all these guys together from all different backgrounds they don't necessarily get along 
they're religiously divided. They're divided personally on so many different levels. <laughs> and it's just this team that in no way ever will work out. And I think the scene kind of captures that pretty well, where they're just showing, hey, none of these guys get along or, you know, are going to work well together, but they're about to give it a go. Uh, next scene is uh, our first look at Bob Euchre as the announcer for the Cleveland Indians. Uh, he starts drinking Jack Daniels right away. This is a guy who knows things, knows things that are going to happen, has been through a lot as an announcer for the Cleveland Indians. He's got pain in his heart uh, as, a, as a fan of this team and an announcer. And they talk about uh, Die Hard Night, by the way. Uh, it's not what I think it is, but for the sake of this discussion, it is. Rudy, what do you envision Die Hard Night being at a baseball game? He envisioned it as a battery, like a car battery. No, I see where you're going with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're diehard night. You dress up as John McClane, you get like five dollars off your ticket. Well, they do say that it's free admission if you were alive the last time the Indians won, uh, <laughs> or something like that. Won the pennant the last yeah, time yeah. they won the pennant There's if you were alive, but yeah. Uh, I have, uh, Christmas parties with my wife's brother's family and we have a theme on Christmas Eve every year. And, and this year's theme was at my house and it was the 12 days of Christmas. So we all, we had to make dishes themed by the 12 days of Christmas next year at his house. It's uh Christmas vacation. And then the year after that, back at my house, it's a diehard Christmas. And everybody has to dress like John McClain. Everybody. <laughs> so that's going to be an amazing Christmas. <laughs> uh, Feeney, did you, did you know Bob Euchre? Did you know about Bob Euchre before this movie? Did you know anything about him? I do not, know. Uh, oh, you know he was a, a, the only thing I know him from, as far as I know. Oh, he, 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 so he played baseball like professionally. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. But I didn't care about that. I wanted him to call every game I ever watched growing up. I was like, I think they had Bob Buecher call like some all star games and maybe like he sat in in a World Series or something. No, Bob Euchre I, was the Milwaukee Brewers announcer. I know, but I never got to watch Milwaukee Brewers. If somebody, have cable if like somebody that. from Milwaukee, where they filmed this and Bob Euchre was the announcer can tell us how Bob Euchre was as an announcer. If he's anything like Harry Doyle uh, in those Gosh, games, I, so. I can't imagine he was actually. Yes, sir. Oh, they love this club here he in Cleveland. <laughs> he has so he many good moments. Oh yeah. Did he? Hello. He did. Is that in the documentary that you watched? Yep. He, they, they just, they would say action and they would let him go. I mean, he had a script, but they said he, you know, he would rarely stick to it. Circling back quickly to the diehard night where they were offering free admission to those who were around the last time they won. The Tigers are two years away from being the same amount from a pennant to being in that position as 
the Indians would have been in the year they made that movie. So the Tigers are on a rough stretch if people didn't know. Uh, anybody who cares does know. I know. It's so bad. hopefully we at least get some free tickets out of it for the older Tiger fans in a couple of years. So. That counts me in. I'm all about it. Uh, hey, do you guys remember the next scene where they show the owner's box? The owner's box is the most ridiculous. It's it's just lattice that that lattice thing around, and it's like out on the on the like out on the field. It's it's not where anything would normally be. It's ridiculous the location of this. When you go back and you're listening to this podcast, when you go back, you have to check out that owner's box. It is brutal. Very brutal. You guys didn't notice that at all? It's almost like a... Yeah, I noticed it. It's almost like a prison because you have the owner and then her yes man. And so it's not supposed to be... I, I feel like it's like meant to not look welcoming not an enjoyable spot to watch baseball uh and then that's when we get uh the beginning of the game and the haze catch with the basket catch uh that's when he comes off the field oh do i have the oh wait i got a couple of things here hang on here in cleveland just a reminder fans about diehard night coming up here at the stadium Okay. Nice catch, Hayes. Don't ever fucking do it again. <laughs> and, uh, and that's right, because uh, I, I watch Major League Baseball games today, and nobody catches the way I was taught when I was young. Uh, the two-hand catch is gone. That's a vintage-only situation, and uh, that's pretty bad. Uh, but he caught it, and there's like seven people in the stands. Mike, uh, you told us earlier how uh, you had a player that would catch ridiculously. Uh, you ever take a fly ball in the outfield in an unusual manner just because you were bored? Um, I don't know if I would say because I was bored. Um, I do recall overrunning a ball at a captain's match at Frankenmuth once and having to stick a hand up and catch it unusually, but that was due to personal error. Um, typically, when I'm out in the baseball field, I'm never really bored, so I wouldn't say that's that's anything along those lines here. <laughs> so that catch right there uh, with Willie Mays Hayes, that's where we're going to end this, uh, and we're going to drop this as part one of this episode because we we will be talking all night about this episode if we keep going so we're going to do this in two parts and we will do uh the second part at a later date that'll probably be about the same length as this as we've just gotten to the first game of the regular season and uh but oh my god are we gonna go over all two games are we gonna what was that mike This is going to be a podcast that's longer than the movie, isn't it? <laughs> it's a scene-by-scene scene breakdown. <laughs> well, yeah, we're talking about it. I love it. Everything we talk about is longer than the scene. Uh, but, yeah, we're at an hour and a half right now, and we just got to the regular season. So 
Uh, we're going to call it good here for part one. Watch for part two next week. Hopefully Rudy can get clearance on the same day Mike's available and there isn't a hockey game. I think I think I make fun of Rudy and Mike because I have no life and I'm available every night. I think I'm just lashing out irrationally. I apologize. Did you want to come play some hockey? <laughs> I got bad ankles. Uh, so uh, thanks for everybody listening to episode... What is this? Rolling out the barrel extra, like number 20. This doesn't count for season four, everybody. Season four doesn't start until the interviews start. This is just a little bit extra. And uh, watch for part two next week. Uh, Mike, thanks for joining us. I look forward to talking to you next week about the second half of the movie. Yeah, thank you for having me. This is fun. Rudy, good to see you, my friend. Get us out of here. Oh, four marbles. The barrel roller. I'm the Spawn Fox telling you to keep it stationed the station. We'll see you out in the field. Yeah, I see. I cannot hit curveball. Straight ball, I hit it very much. Curveball. Bats are afraid.